Let's get into the word tonight. We return this evening to our look at the Sermon on the Mount specifically for the next couple weeks at least. We're going to deal with some of the Beatitudes. Um, we moved away for a little bit last week when we incorporated the, Mary's Magnificat, her prayer, and how I think that that is informed by or informs the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you missed the Magnificat on the Mount, strange title, really crams together two moments in the Gospels, but I, uh, I think it will at least give you something to think about in regards to why the Sermon on the Mount exists. Where does Jesus come up with this rather, rather revolutionary sermon? It may not seem like that to us, but I hope that that sermon helped get you in the mindset that, hey, this isn't common stuff, what Jesus is saying. However, what we're going to find tonight is that it's not entirely new stuff. Jesus does take, in some cases, material that his Hebrew audience had heard before. They had heard it in a different context, in a different setting. Sometimes we're not familiar with things because we're, not, we're couching them in different settings. And so what might seem very common to one people seems brand new to someone else. You've probably heard it said there's nothing new under the sun. We often quote Solomon when we come up with something and then we come to the realization that we're a little late to the party. Someone else has already thought of that. Um, that's the case with almost every revelation we have. It's new to me. may not be new to you. It's new to you. may not be new to me. Um, Jesus is doing that a lot in his ministry. He's bringing some things to their mind, saying, you've heard it said. But he also brings some things up. He doesn't quote his source, but if you'll go back into the Old Testament, sometimes the Torah, sometimes the songs, the Proverbs, the major prophets, the minor prophets, you'll find that Jesus is quoting Bible. This happens a lot in the Gospels. We get into the Sermon on the Mount, and you start to list off these Beatitudes, and you start to realize that some of these things had not been thought of before. No one um, had ever said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But as we talked about a couple weeks ago, it wasn't a stretch to imagine that the Gospel should go to the poor. In fact, it's what Jesus responded to John the Baptist with when John the Baptist sent an emissary and said, ask him if he's the one. And one of Jesus' responses was, tell him the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why is that impressive? Because if you dig around in the Old Testament long enough, you're going to realize, you don't have to dig very far, by the way, but if you get into the Old Testament, you're going to realize that the poor was very important to God. The stranger in the land, the widow, very important to God. So the gospel has to include those, otherwise it can't be God's news. So in that case, Jesus is pulling information they would have gotten, but they, he, he doesn't say it. No one had ever said, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. And when you frame it in that way, it's pretty shocking because it's one of those paradigm shifts where it's not what you think it is. It's not the strong that are the head of the kingdom. It's not the powerful that are at the head of the kingdom. It's everybody else. So Beatitudes keeps that trend alive as we work down the list. And I'm not trying to go sequentially, uh, but we do end up, at the third beatitude on the list tonight, and, and I want to take it in a little different direction. Um, in that, I want to show you that Jesus is quoting previous material, but he's doing it in a way that the listener would have searched out the context. I want us to do that too, um, because the inheritance of the meek, the word meek, that little four-letter M-E-E-K, means one thing to us, and maybe not surprisingly meant another thing to them. And because it means one thing to us, we insert what it means to us into every reading. And we do that to our demise because 
I'm going to present to you tonight that it didn't quite mean to them exactly what it always means to us. Let's see our text, Matthew 5, 5. Very simple, short sentence, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Whatever you think meek means, put that on the back burner for a moment and start at the end. They will inherit the earth. So the promise is that they get something. It's not just that they get access to something like the kingdom of God. It's not just that they have the tears dried. He'll wipe all tears from their eyes. That's blessed are those that mourn. They'll be comforted. But they actually get something. They receive an inheritance. And so we're going to end up there tonight because our title is The Inheritance of the Meek. I want to find out what that inheritance is and what should they expect and what should we expect. To do that, we've got, we got to tackle this animal meek because... Our thoughts are not necessarily their thoughts. Let me give you an example. Look at Merriam-Webster, all right? You could go to a thousand dictionaries. I don't know that we've ever used an English dictionary in our Bible study because we're always talking Greek and Hebrew. We're going to talk Greek as well. But I want to show you something in the English. Look at meek, three different definitions of meek in an English dictionary. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. So that's someone that basically gets run over, first definition. Someone who is violated physically, mentally, whatever, violated, but they don't fight back, they just take it, and they don't even get resentful. That's an attitude, all right? Two, deficient in spirit and courage, or you could say submissive. What I think you could say, if you say deficient in spirit and courage, is you could say cowardly. Because that sure does sound like the definition of a coward. And then the third one, not violent or strong, but rather moderate. Or you could say, if you're not violent or strong, maybe you're passive and weak. This is English definition of meek. Okay. Based upon this definition, you basically get run over, you're a coward, and you're weak, moderate at best, submissive at best. No real good reasons to want this at all, right? And, and I know, based on how we've been teaching the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes, you're probably thinking, well, I hope this doesn't end up to where that's what I'm supposed to be if I'm going to be the meek that inherit the earth. Um, good news, bad news. Good news, I don't think this is what meek is in the Greek. Bad news, it's still probably not going to be what you want to be because that's the nature oftentimes of introducing the language of the kingdom versus the language we're accustomed to. That's often the language of the system. But look at the Greek. The Greek word is preos, gentle, mild, meek. This is the thing I hate about definitions. A definition that uses the word in the definition to me is where the translator or the writer had no idea what it was. So if I were to say to you, hey, can you define meek? And anywhere in your answer, you use the word meek, it tells me you don't know what meek means. And so in the Greek, and I mean you can go research scholars and theologians and read out commentators from across church history, and you will find that when they try to define meek, they end up using the word meek because they just can't land on it if your English definition is stuff like endures injury, no courage, not strong, 
and we know something doesn't feel quite right. So when we end up trying to define it, even in the Greek, we end up using the same word. Now, a word that is pretty close, at least in regards to how we can use it, is the word gentle. Because there is an attitude that comes with meekness. It's not just emotional, though. Gentle tends to tilt towards emotion. Um, so that one's okay. We'll keep it there. But I, I, I don't want to mock the Greek. I mean, the Greek's what this is written in. But it is interesting to me that even in Greek dictionaries, you land on the same word you start with. And that's meek. That tells me we need to do some work on meek. It, and, and the good news is, this won't surprise you. The good news is, if you want to find out how to interpret the Bible, read the rest of the Bible. It's a, it's a good tip. It's a tip that I share with people all the time that doesn't seem to satisfy them. When they'll say, I want to know how to study. And I'll say, well, then you need to read the whole thing, first of all. I want to understand, it's like when people say to me, I want to understand Revelation. A lot of times I'll say, you're, you're probably not there yet because you're still reading the Bible literally instead of allegorically. If you can ever get past that, maybe you're ready for Revelation. But also, by the way, if you haven't read this, this, and this from the Old Testament, you're going to be lost from day one. So maybe don't go there before you go there. And I know we can't read everything in the Old Testament every time we want to open the New Testament. It's not possible. But to be well-rounded in this, we have to study the Bible as a whole. I know it's not my covenant. If I look into the Old Testament, that's not my covenant. So what am I looking for? Well, I'm often looking for Jesus. I'm looking for Jesus standing in the shadows. I'm looking for Jesus as the shadow, even though I have the substance. I want to see what I can find about him there. But you can also use it as an interpretive device because remember, Jesus is talking to Jews. He's talking to Israelites. So when he says something that's in their Old Testament, they take it differently than we do because they understood their Old Testament through a lens maybe that we do not. So I want you to keep in mind these thoughts about meekness. We're going to intentionally keep the English definition in our mind for a moment. Cowardly, gets run over, not violent, not strong, submissive, moderate. Okay, Keep that in mind as you read a Jewish story. Numbers chapter 12. We're going to way back into the Torah. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. Um, by the way, this is a freebie. Don't be surprised in the church if people tell you who you are allowed to love, who you are allowed to embrace. We have a long and storied history of that, stretching all the way back to at least right here. And a couple people weren't happy with the fact that Moses married an Ethiopian, a Cushite woman, who is no doubt not Hebrew, has not been born into the family of Israel, does not understand the legal code or the law code, and shocker, shockers, is from a different race. And it bothered them in the same way that it bothers people now when your lifestyle doesn't meet their acceptable lifestyle. And so that's not a new phenomenon, is my point. It's not like a current American thing or, you know, just fogies, old fogies in the wrong century. We've always had this issue. And it's really because we often fear what we don't understand. And so what we don't understand and we fear, we try to make, we try to outlaw or we try to make illegal or we try to cut people down. So that really isn't the point of this lesson, but it's a point you can't miss if you're going to read this text. Because if you want to be fair to the text, you at least need to bring up the fact 
that they, br they bring this up before Moses. They're angry because he's married an Ethiopian woman. And they say, has the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Has he not spoken also by us? And the Lord heard it. And before I get to that last sentence, look at that question. Has the Lord only spoken by Moses? Has he not spoken by us? In other words, why does Moses hear that it's okay to do this? Why didn't God tell us? And this leads me to a second point. Don't ever wait on other people to tell you what God has to say to you. You have the opportunity to have your own individual relationship. I think one of the tragedies that happened in the great Pentecostal and charismatic movements, and I mean that literally great Pentecostal and charismatic movements, one of the tragedies that happened is that in the middle of these great moves of the Spirit, people atrophied their own ability to hear from God because they went to church and waited on someone to lay hands on them and tell them what they're supposed to do with their life, who they're supposed to marry, what job they're supposed to have. And then they were at the mercy of other people. And when you're at the mercy of other people, you're also at the mercy of other people's prejudices and their disagreements and their dislikes and their theological wranglings and their misunderstandings. And what happens is you walk out without the ability to hear from God, full of someone else's idea for your future. You're better than that. You have access to the Holy Spirit. Take advantage of it. That's something that we all need to keep in mind. And I think one of the reasons why so many people became disillusioned in quote-unquote moves of the Spirit is because after a while, when you're not hearing from God, then it becomes, it becomes a show of the people who claim to be hearing from God. And so you just come and watch. And then we hear preachers get up and say stuff like, just come watch me burn which then you're starting to build whole stuff around someone else's ability to hear from God. And that's not, you have, you have greater access than that. Here's the real kicker though, and the Lord heard it because he does. So pay attention, not only to listening to the Lord, but realize that he hears it, all right? He hears whatever it is that we're saying to people and about people and into people. And him hearing it is a big deal. And then comes a parenthetical verse, which what I mean by that is verse 3 brackets with parentheses. It means most likely, most likely that it's an addition to the text from a later year, which someone drops in a thought almost as a commentary into the middle of that text. Whether it is or not, it brings up our point. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And interestingly enough, if we take our English definition of meek, that would mean this. Moses, more than anybody else, was passive, could endure injury, was a coward, was weak, and was a moderate. And if you know Moses' story at all, you start to realize you've been hoodwinked when it comes to meekness. If this is an addition that we can, or, or, or a verse that we can wrap our consciousnesses around and go, okay, that's in the Bible, that Moses is a meek man above all the people on the face of the earth, then we have to contend with some things in the Moses story. Uh, and part of what we'd have to contend with is the fact that Moses killed a man. Uh, if you'll recall that the, some of the earliest stories about Moses is that he sees an Egyptian and a Hebrew fighting and he defends the Hebrew and ends up killing the Egyptian. Um, doesn't sound like a man full of meekness in regards to weak, not violent, cowardly, submissive, gets run over and doesn't resent it. Um, a man who had, you could just say it, 
at times, kind of a flaming temper. I mean, he takes Israel into the wilderness. He smites the rock and water comes forth. And then some months later, Israel is thirsty again. And in his anger, even though God told him to speak to the rock, he smites the rock again, uh, a problem that will cost him his own inheritance in the promised land. And that's kind of the opposite of the English definition of meek. Um, and probably one of his most famous moments, he comes down from Sinai carrying two tablets of stone that had been written on by the finger of God, according to the text. And when he got to the bottom of the mountain, he found that Israel was worshiping a golden calf. So what does he do with what is no doubt the most priceless artifact in the history of humanity? He throws it on the ground and breaks it into 10,000 pieces in anger. It doesn't sound like Merriam-Webster's definition of meek. It's quite possible that we need better definitions when it comes to meek. The interesting part about this story, because I, I, when I put this up and I thought, okay, uh, we're going to just introduce this. You get to that one verse there in verse 3. It says, Moses is meek. Um, but then I realize we've got a lot of listeners who will take these stories and then read it out. And I want you to do the same thing, although we're not going to read it out together. You can do that on your own. When you get home, read Numbers 12. And this chapter is fascinating. This is a moment where God visits Moses, Aaron, and Miriam and defends Moses and says, Normally, I will speak to man through a dream and a vision, but not so with Moses. He says, with Moses, I will speak to him with no cloud, face to face. And, and in response to Miriam and Aaron's accusation, Miriam gets leprosy. And Moses goes before the Lord, playing sort of the mediatorial Christ role, and prays on Miriam's behalf, and then God delivers Miriam, but instructs Moses to kick her out of the camp for seven days. And so you got, the, you got a, an enormous amount of sort of spiritual psychology going on in this chapter as well. But I think it's one of the most interesting pictures of the mercy of God. Um, we are often quick to do more than expel. We are quick to eliminate whatever's in opposition to us. God is showing us, I think, that sometimes what we have to do with opposition is separate ourselves from it for a season. Why not six days? Why not eight days? Why not 10 days? Why seven days? Because for the Hebrews, seven was that number of completion. There is a perfect amount of time to separate yourself. And this is something we need to learn in life. Um, we certainly need to learn it in this hour where I think we're being swamped with information, we're being swamped with social media, we're being swamped with people's opinion, we're being swamped with accusation and immediate feedback. No culture in the history of the world has had a, as fast a feedback as we have. And there was, something, there was something to the advantage in years gone by that you had to actually write a letter to the editor. You know, you had time to think about it. Now it's a tweet away from your first response. And uh, your first response is often your worst response. If there's any piece of equipment in the Bible that helps us to deal with accusation, it might be Exodus 12. And that is that you need to learn to live with these people because Miriam's going to be an important part of the story. So is Aaron. You don't want them gone, but you might need to separate yourself from them for a while. And after the seven days, there's a reunion, there's a healing. If you want to look at it in allegorical terms, um, Maybe Moses' meekness is in knowing how not to respond to Miriam and Aaron because Moses doesn't respond. Moses doesn't defend himself. 
Is he a coward? Is he a pacifist? Does he just let himself get run over? I don't feel comfortable landing there with Moses, not based upon what I know about him, but what I learn about Moses as the story unfolds is Moses knows when to respond and how to respond. And the Bible has just introduced us to the meekest man on the planet. And then in the same context of the story, shows him being wrongfully accused and he doesn't fight back. So I don't take that to mean Moses is easy to run over. I take that to mean Moses knows when to open his mouth and when not to. He knows when to defend and when not to. He knows what the threat level is and how to respond appropriately to it. And the appropriate response in this case was to simply let God be his defender. So it's interesting to me that when the Bible, not Merriam-Webster, when the Bible starts to introduce meekness, it couches it in the story of a man who is accused by the people closest to him and who has all the power and authority. And God even steps in. It's like we get to look behind the curtain and God steps in and goes, nobody has more power and authority than this man. Watch what you say about him. And when God steps in and curses Miriam with leprosy, Moses steps forward. Because he's the meekest man alive and says to God, can you pull back? And God goes, okay, at least separate yourself from her. And it's, can I say it's all a test? Yes. It's showing you what meekness would look like on the earth. It's God's man on the earth. It's why God steps in to defend it. So I refuse to believe that Moses is meek, a.k.a. he's a big coward. Or he's easily run over. Or um, he has no resentment because the rest of his story doesn't back that up. So don't let our definition of meekness color the story. Let the story color our definition of meekness. And in the story, Moses has to learn to respond in a way that gives him a future with his detractor, not in a way that doesn't give him a future at all with that detractor. And so in some respects, Moses is showing us the exact opposite of how we would often respond. He's also an, inter, an intercessory for those who've accused him. And that's very Sermon on the Mountish. Jesus says to you, I tell you, if a man smites you on the cheek, turn to him the other one. Do not resist an evil person. Pray for your persecutor. You go, that's a, that's a bridge too far. I mean, it's one thing to tell me to turn the other cheek. It's another thing to tell me to actually pray for my persecutor to be blessed can't go that far. That's a mediatorial role. That's the Christ role in front of the Father for all of us persecutors, for all of us enemies, for all of us sinners. And that leads us to the fact that Moses isn't the Bible's only meek man. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest unto your souls. So let's go back to our English definition of meek and let's imagine that Jesus is a coward and submissive and weak and a moderate at best. Once again, it just doesn't hold water when you start to insert our ideas of this into the characters because now we have a New Testament character, the highest version of humanity in all of the Bible and all of human history. It's Jesus and out of his mouth, I am meek and lowly in heart. So learning what meek means then becomes that great challenge because 
If it looks like Moses' meekness, and we must assume it looks like Moses and then some, because this is Jesus, not Moses. In fact, in the early chapters of John, and don't think this is a coincidence, by the way, in the early chapters of John, the author of John intentionally stacks Jesus up next to Moses and then has Jesus higher. For the law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus. In other words, Moses could give you a little bit. Jesus could give you a lot. Uh, and then the Gospels want to elevate him even higher. Jesus takes Peter, James, John to the top of a mountain. And a bright light shines from heaven. And two appear with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. Jesus, let's build three houses. One for you, one for Moses. Well, you know the story. And then a voice from heaven, this is my son, hear him. Elijah vanishes. Moses vanishes. Jesus is left alone on the field. Because he's higher than the Elijah spirit. He's higher than the Moses spirit. So whatever way Moses is meek, Jesus beats that in spades. How was Moses meek? Accused by his own, turned against by his family, by his brethren. They're literally his blood family. And yet his response is not to cut them out forever, but to find a way to reconcile. And the Bible calls him meek. What about Jesus? Is he a coward? Is he a pushover? Well, he verbally calls the Pharisees vipers. He overturns the tables in the temple with a whip and says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And when he's described in Revelation 5 as the lion, or shown to be a slain lamb, his title is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's no other person in the Bible who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And yet that's Jesus. So meek and cowardly don't go together when it comes to Jesus. But he does work towards reconciliation for his enemies. He doesn't retaliate the way you expect. Doesn't respond the way the world would respond. And maybe the definition of meek should be rehashed. Now, to his audience. Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek. They shall inherit the earth. Look how much this sounds like previous information in their literature. Next one. Psalm 37, 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. It not only sounds like it, the first half of it is word for word. Now there's a rebuttal at the top of this verse, but which tells me that we probably need to sing the first part of the song because we are in verse 11 of a 40 verse song and 40 stanzas. Psalms is unique among the Old Testament books because it's the only one that was pre-broken into chapters, um, not entirely in the way that we broke them into English chapters. We have 150 psalms. There were more than 150 psalms because in some cases we jammed a bunch of them into the same chapter. Like, for instance, if you've ever read, what is it, the 119th psalm, it is Stanza after stanza after stanza. It's like a whole album of songs in one chapter. We didn't break it up, and we could have, and we did not. And there's other reasons for that. Anyhow, the songbook is Psalms. The Hebrew songbook was the main purveyor of theology for the Hebrew people. I've said this before, but I'll share this stat again. This is just for purposes to get you to really understand how important the songbook was. Uh, the world into which Jesus came had a literacy rate of less than 
which meant that 97 of every 100 people you would encounter did not know how to read. Um, it was also a world that didn't have printing presses, and so even that which could be read was hard to find. Um, we live in an advertise-rich world. You drive down the road, you see billboards. You watch television and there'll be commercials. Uh, there's newspapers, there's internet articles. Everywhere you turn, someone is saying something to you. You won't be able to drive out of this neighborhood tonight without seeing a stop sign or a yield sign. There's words everywhere. Imagine living in a world where there were almost no words because it wouldn't have done much good to put them up. No one knew what they meant anyhow. How do you communicate deep thought to a people that don't know how to read? Well, one of the things you do is you talk a lot. It's one of the things that's been lost on us in the Bible is because we read the Bible, but the Bible was written to be read out loud, mostly to people that did not know how to read. It's like, for instance, when the Apostle Paul would write the letter to the church at Philippi. We call that Philippians. We'll sit down with our morning coffee and we'll read the book of Philippians. Paul did not anticipate any human being would ever do that. What Paul did anticipate was there was at least someone at Philippi who could read. And they would stand in front of the church at Philippi and read portions of it out loud. And they might have to read it over and over again until it sunk in. And then everyone would talk about what they heard. And then next week they might read a little more from the letter Paul sent us to Philippi. And they were using all of their cultural and contextual information and all of their past. Let me give you an even better way to teach. It's not just to read over and over again. Sing. You know more lyrics than you realize. Next time a song comes on the radio and you start singing it and wonder, I never sat down to learn this song. I don't remember the moment in my life where I went, I'm going to learn that song. And yet, here you are, singing eight out of ten words correctly and making up the other two. And being pretty passionate that your two are right, even though they're wrong, and you're shocked the day you find out what the words are. But the point is, is that we are, we are real quick to remember to music. This is why the Hebrews had a songbook, and they jam-packed it with theology. You might also be surprised, and I know most people, especially in the modern church worship world, are shocked to find, two thir almost two-thirds of the songbook of Hebrew were songs of lament. You're hard-pressed to hear a song of lament in the modern church. Our songs are always encouraging. I'm identity. Here's who I am in Christ. I'm the best. He's the best. We're the best. Come join the best. There's very few. It's been a trashy week. All hell's breaking loose. Not sure I'm going to make it. Are you as depressed as I am? <laughs> and then we go, well, yeah. We go, who's going to praise the, who's going to praise the Lord to that, right? And yet, when you read the book of Psalms, there's tons of it, like whole chapters of it. And you go, gosh, these are depressing people. And you go realize the context in which these songs existed were people wrestling out who God is and what God looks like. And they're living in a world in which a lot of times they are the stranger. We're not just talking about loving the stranger. They are the stranger, the vagabond. They are the wanderer. And they sing like it. And their theology is packed with it. And if you want to see that played out, remember when Jesus dies on the cross... His first word, he has seven words, seven sayings on the cross. This is worth your study. Seven sayings. The first one is from a song and the seventh one is from a song. They're the same song. The first line is the first line of Psalm 22. The last line is the last line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is finished. And in between, 
is everything else because in between, in Psalms 22, somebody's dying. His hands and feet are pierced and Jesus sings on the cross. Why? So that his audience will sing Psalm 22 in their head. And if they're standing there singing Psalms 22, they're going to realize the prophecy in that psalm is the guy hanging on that cross. So in his death, Jesus preaches what was maybe his best sermon. He sings a song from the Psalms. Now, Psalm 37, he says, Blessed, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a line they know from a song they've heard. And so we don't go back and reread the whole psalm because sometimes we're a little bit lazy. Or maybe we just don't realize that's how we ought to read the Bible. But if Jesus quotes a line from a song and the, and the line starts with but... Maybe we should go find out what's in front of that. And maybe we should go find out what's behind that. And yes, we're going to read all 40 verses because it's a Bible study. And that's what you came for. So let's, we don't know how to sing it. We don't know what the, the tune was or the instrumentation. But we know it's a psalm of David. And I want you to catch the theme because you're going to hear something come back over and over. And that's why Jesus quoted it. Psalms 37.1. Do not fret because of evildoers. Nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Grab that phrase right there, dwell in the land. This sounds like inheritance talk. This is a people looking for a property. This is a people waiting on their spot in the earth. Psalms 37 is going to speak to that. So trust in the Lord, do good, you'll dwell in the land. And I love this line, feed on his faithfulness. So you don't know what to feed on during the day? I'll, I'll treat some of these verses a little preach-like because you've got to bring some of this stuff to the forefront. You don't know what to feed on every day? Feed on His faithfulness. How faithful He is to you and how faithful He is to the covenant. Uh, next verse. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Amen to that. Delight yourself in who He is and watch the desires of your heart. We have a lot of people asking God for the desires of their heart who do not delight themselves in, the, in Jehovah. That's the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's not just a guy whose finger fell on all caps when he was typing. That is intentionally done so because the word used there is the word for covenant God. Delight yourself in God's covenant and watch the desires of your heart come out. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He shall bring it to pass. Commit is an interesting word. It's not as good as it is in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's roll it into him and watch him make it come to pass. I think that's better. I don't know why we ended up on commit. Roll your stuff to the Lord. So it's, it's that indication. It's almost where Peter says, cast your cares upon the Lord for he cares for you. So you just pull them off of you onto him. It's a little bit that way in Psalms 37.5. Roll your way onto the Lord, trust in him, he'll bring it to pass. Six, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in His way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Eight. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. A lot of power in the eighth verse. Cease from your anger. Forsake your wrath. Do not fret. Only causes harm. Does it sound a little bit like Moses and Jesus? In the meek passage. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth. Here we go. We're getting there. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Verse 11. 
Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth. Who doesn't get it? Go back a screen. Yet a little while and the wicked shall be no more. Next. Indeed, you're going to look carefully for that wicked, but they're not going to be there anymore. Why? Because the meek shall inherit that place and that position. The meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace because whatever's happening on their earth is an abundance of peace. The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. 13. The Lord laughs at him because he sees his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent the bow to cast down the poor and needy. Here they come again. They are part of the Beatitudes story. It's because they're part of Israel's story. You cannot preach the gospel without preaching the poor. By the way, you can't be a part of the church of Jesus Christ without having a perpetual desire for those who have nothing. It, it just can't. It's not palatable. This is why the church of success and excess struggles in the face of the stranger. They don't struggle with much, but they struggle with what to do with the stranger. They struggle with what to do with poverty. They struggle with what to do with the pain. Because it's, it's part of who we are. To cat, they've bent their bow. What do they do? They cast down the poor and needy. 15. To slay those who are of upright conduct. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. 17. For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. There it is again. They shall not be ashamed in evil time and in the days of famine they shall be satisfied. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord like the splendor of the metals shall vanish into smoke. They shall vanish away. Here's why. Because the wicked borrows and he does not repay. But the righteous show mercy and give. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth. There it is again. And those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. We, we've quoted, we quote that a lot. That's, that one's probably the most popular Christian verse from Psalms 37. It's the steps of the, of the righteous man. We say righteous. Old King James said righteous. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Here's another. This is probably the second. This was a really popular one in charismatic churches. We quoted Psalm 37, 25. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. And he used to quote that one and had that one quoted all the time. That was sort of a, that was like a prosperity verse, an anti-poverty verse. You're never going to go, there's never going to be any problems for you because I'm young and old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken and his descendants begging bread. He's merciful and he lends and his descendants are blessed. Don't worry if you're not grab, grabbing the entire theme. We're going to work. I'm going to pull the highlights out here in a moment, but I want you to hear the whole song. Depart from evil. Do good. Dwell forevermore. The Lord loves justice. Keep that in mind. He loves justice. Notice that when it talks about him loving justice, it doesn't forsake his saints. They're preserved forever. We think justice. We often think judgment. He thinks justice. He thinks preservation for his own. Taking care of that which isn't being taken care of. God's idea of justice, take care of what can't take care of itself. Our idea of justice, bad people get what's coming to them. Why is that? What's that say about our heart versus what we know about God? All right. Keep that in mind because that's going to come back too. They're preserved forever. The descendants of the wicked should be cut off. 
Here we go again. The righteous shall inherit the land, dwell in it forever. The mouth of the righteous speaks wisdom. His tongue talks of justice. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide while the wicked watches the righteous and seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. Ooh, I love that. that. The Lord will not leave us in the hand of the wicked and we will not condemn him when he is judged. Judgment shouldn't scare you. Condemnation should scare you. Judgment's on your side. You happily go for a judge if justice is on your side. Condemnation means guilt. We know that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. We don't get condemned when we are judged. Stay there for just a second. I'm going to say this because just, this just hit me. I was talking to a young man this week and he was asking me Bible questions. He's, he's on a search. He's on a journey. And by the way, if you're watching, if you're listening, the root, this is corny, but it's true. The root word of question is quest. You are on a quest and you cannot be on a quest without asking some questions. And in the middle of your question is a quest, okay? So ask a lot of them. And I also say, if you're asking none, you either, I don't want to say you're stupid. If you're asking none, you don't know what you're missing. That's a, that's a diplomatic way of saying that. Um, and, and he asked me about judgment. And he was a little concerned. He's a believer. And I just felt compelled to share this with whoever's listening, all right? You, you have boldness in the day of judgment because perfect love casts out fear. You're not scared of anything because you hold the hand of the judge when you stand in front of him, all right? It doesn't mean there is no judgment. It just means that judgment against your sin has been exacted in Jesus. And you stand before the judgment seat of Christ for whatever good or evil you have done in the body you'll be able to embrace it because Paul also told the Corinthians, he told the Corinthians, you'll stand for the judgment seat of Christ to be judged good and evil. But he also told those same Corinthians that that which needs burned up, which is wood, hay, and stubble, will be burned up so that the precious stones can shine in your life. If that's not happening here, then it'll happen over there. But don't fear judgment. Look forward to judgment if the justice is on your side. So when people say, when, when we talk about judgment in the future, don't, you don't have to fear judgment in the future because whatever it looks like, your sins have been judged in Jesus and your actions will be burned up by the fire of His Spirit. And that which is worth holding on to for eternity will shine like gold, silver, and precious stones. And that which God doesn't want with you through eternity will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. And I'm okay with that because I trust the Jesus that meets me in the fire. Listen, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace, they walk into the fiery furnace because they see the Son of God walking through the fire. And we always like to say, they didn't get singed at all. Their bodies didn't, but what burned on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because something burned. We just don't preach it. The Bible says they went in bound, hand and foot. What burned up was what bound them. And that's what's going to burn up in your judgment. Whatever binds you when you walk into the furnace of His love, whatever bound you, that's what's going to get burned up in the presence of God. He who is the same yesterday, today, and forever is going to meet you in the furnace, the crucible of judgment. And the hands and feet 
is going to be free. Parts of you that have never been free here will be free over there. I hope you get freed here. But if not, don't worry. They'll be freed there. That's the justice system of heaven. That was free. That was good news. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide. The wicked watches the righteous. He seeks to slay him. The Lord will not leave him in his hand, nor condemn him when he is judged. 34, wait on the Lord. Keep his way. He shall exalt you to, there it is again, inherit the land. Can you see that? A theme of Psalm 37, whether you catch it first glance or not, is inheritance, 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 dwell in the land. This song is about getting something for yourself. And it's opposite there's, there's these opposing forces, the evil and the righteous, the wicked and the upright, and God's defending the righteous. When the wicked are cut off, you're going to see it. I have seen the wicked in great power, spreading himself like a native green tree, yet he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Indeed, I sought him, but he couldn't be found. Mark the blameless man, observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. But the transgressors shall be destroyed together future of the wicked shall be cut off, but the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. That is the song that Jesus sings from when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let's look at some highlights. The meek shall inherit the earth is found in a song about inheritance and a song about dwelling in the land. The song exists in an era where Israel was looking for their land. And only the elite and the wealthy even had any. It was very uncommon to expect a property inheritance. We do it all the time. We have title deeds, piece of property you expect is going to be passed down to your children, your grandchildren. This is why we have a hard time understanding the Bible sometimes. Because that didn't exist. For a big chunk of Israel's history, especially up into the time of Christ, there was no such thing as property possession. Um, if you were a Jew living in the time of Christ, you had zero physical inheritance. You didn't have a piece of property. Whatever you had, you were tenant of, not an owner of. Israel didn't even have her own land. She was occupied by Rome. Um, we, for most of human history, we lived in a world in which the elite owned the property. To this day, the largest landowner in England is the queen. Um, it's how the royal family of Great Britain is funded, is by whatever sets on the land pays taxes to the crown and the land is owned by the royalty. That's not unusual. It's unusual that the royalty doesn't own the land in the history of the world. We live in an unusual era. And so to talk to people about inheritance would have been like trying to, was like speaking Martian. They didn't know what that meant. You didn't get an inheritance. So don't just take this in literal terms. This is what's hurting the modern church is we think that Israel needs a piece of property when in reality, we all need a possession called Jesus, and that possession has been paid for in Christ. It's not a piece of property that we're looking for. It's not just a physical piece of land. So it's uncommon to expect an inheritance of property. So what is it? This is the question. Who receives the inheritance? I just break down a few of them for you. I even put the verses in there. You want to go back, reread that 37th Psalm? Look at this. Who gets the inheritance? People that do good. People that rest in the land. People that do not fret. People that cease from anger, people that forsake wrath, people that show mercy, depart from evil, wait on the Lord. And the one we didn't include, the meek, shall inherit the earth. And you know why I didn't include the meek? Because in reality, the word meek is a conglomeration of everything else in that chapter. In other words, the meek are the ones that do good, rest in the land, don't fret, forsake anger, forsake wrath, show mercy, depart from evil, wait on the Lord. They're not the coward, run over, pacifist 
lazy, moderate, submissive. Those are man's definitions of meekness because we don't applaud gentleness. The system of man does not applaud biblical meekness because we're scared to be meek in biblical terms. So what have we done to it? We've made the definition so bad, no one would want it. Biblical meekness is something to be aspired towards because biblical meekness is Psalms 37. If you walk in that, you inherit whatever God has for you. But because we're afraid that meekness will get us run over, we've made up Merriam-Webster dictionary definitions, which is meek is a kind of a coward. He's kind of a miserly. He just gets ran over all the time. And who in the world would ever want to be meek? Because the world will destroy you if you're meek. But the reality is, is the inheritance is in this. And what is that stuff? Guess what? It's the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. It's everything Jesus lived out. So when the Bible tells you I'm meek and lowly, he's not a coward. He's this. He's doing good, resting in the land, doesn't fret, ceases from anger, forsakes his wrath, shows mercy, departs from evil, and waits on his Father. And that's called meekness. And Jesus receives the inheritance of all of heaven. That's what you get. In Christ, that's the inheritance of meekness. Or this, the inheritance. This was just my thoughts, okay? This is kind of Paul White trying to wrestle out a way to say this and Two sentences. The inheritance is the kind of world created by such an action. We inhabit the earth we create by either living as the systems of the world or by living in the way of meekness. You inherit the world you create. You live in the world you make. Now you can sit around all day long and talk about how everybody else has done stuff to you. And then you can live in the world of their construction. And that's your choice. You want to let people tell you how you ought to feel about yourself? That's on you. Oh, you don't blame it on other people. They're going to tell you things all the time. Some of it's true. A lot of it's a lie. You don't have to swallow it. You don't base your own self on what's said around you. You don't base your own thought process on what the world says about you. You're not forced to respond. He made me so mad. He didn't make you nothing. He poked and poked and poked. And the decision that you had was your decision. Your response belongs to you. The moment you let it belong to someone else, you're not in control of your own emotions. You're not in control of your own life. Now you are the product of someone else's system. That's the world we create. That's the system most of us live by. Jesus offers an alternative. He goes, the kingdom looks like something else. The meek get to inherit the earth. Now, did you recall this from our story? We land here. All throughout Psalms 37 was justice, 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 justice. God's going to take care of it. What's the next beatitude? Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And you might be thinking, okay, well, big deal. That doesn't sound at all like Psalm 37. Until you realize that the word righteousness is the exact same word in the Greek as the word justice. And because we are so prone to look at justice as a bad thing, guess how many times we translated it justice in the English translation of the Bible? Zero. Because what we did with the New Testament is we figured that salvation was entirely individual. Salvation is all about me. I go to heaven. Christ is in me. Greater is he that's in me, he is in this world. So when we saw justice, we have the option in the Greek because you can translate it either way. Justice or righteousness. Justice or righteousness. We choose righteousness over and over and over again because our mentality is, is that Christianity is what makes us righteous. But maybe... We need to figure that Christianity is what makes right.
the world, which is justice. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Or maybe I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there inside of that message is the justice of God revealed as we show faith in God from faith to faith. You want to see God's justice? That's the gospel. Now, we're going to explore this bad boy because we're going to dig a little deeper into what God's justice looks like. But don't be surprised that meekness and justice fall hand in hand. How can it be otherwise? Because as we portray the meekness, inherit our spot in the kingdom, inherit the land, whatever that land might be in our situation, justice falls in our favor. Anti-meek? What would be anti-meekness? We talk about antichrist. What would be the anti-meek? Moses hears what Miriam says about him and Moses just takes care of it. I'll just take care of this right now. You know what meekness sounds like? You spread your hands on the cross and as the blood drips onto the earth, you say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know why that jars us so badly that we can't figure out how Jesus says that? Because we don't understand what it means to be meek. It's not a coward that says that. That's a man that has more power than we know, than we can imagine. One scholar wrote, meekness is the ability to keep your sword sheathed. I like that. What that means is you're faced with the chance to pull your sword and you don't. People around you might call it apathy and cowardice. But if you keep it sheathed because you know that's not the world you want to create, that's meek. Anybody can pull the sword, but not just anybody can keep it where it belongs. Jesus takes his disciples into the garden, says, bring a sword. Peter brings, says, we got two, is that enough? Jesus goes, that's enough. You go, gosh, Jesus is ready for them to get violent. And then they get attacked in the garden. Peter pulls his sword out and cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus picks the ear up, puts it back on the guy's head, turns to Peter and says, put your sword away. Permit even this. If you live by that sword, you'll die by that sword. And I used to read that and go, well, why did he tell him to bring one in the first place? Because it is no great virtue to not fight back if you don't have a sword. How are you going to fight back? It's a great virtue to have the ability and know how not to. The meek shall inherit the earth. Father, thank you. What a word. This has been fun to dig out this week, Lord. It's been fun to wrestle with some of these ideas and thoughts. I hope we've done justice to the word. Thank you for this, this group in this room, and thank you for the many that will watch and that will listen and that will take this journey with us and that will go on a quest and ask questions and maybe together we'll realize that you are the meek one. This is the definition of how you act. And that, Father, we want to be more like you. And we are in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.